Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. The grace and the peace of our Lord be with you today. Uh, Today I want to invite you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 12. And as you're turning in your Bibles in here, I want to welcome the rest of our church family worshiping in the Family Life Center to turn in your Bibles as well, as well as those who are part of our extended family tuning in online. Uh, Turn to Leviticus chapter 12. And as you're turning, I just want to take a moment to tell you, uh, I, I cannot find the words to express how proud I am of you this weekend. You should have seen you in action. I mean it. Nearly 200 of you gathered, you worked, you were present, you served, you made lunches, you drove cars, you opened doors. The last two nights, Friday night and Saturday night in the Family Life Center, as our worship band was, was oh, just absolutely amazing. These These students were in worship, in full worship, as they prepared their minds and hearts to go out and be the hands and feet of Christ. And I told probably a dozen people each night, I could not be more proud to be your pastor than on weekends like this. Uh, I also want to tell you, there are other moments when I'm really proud to be your pastor, and and it's this. Um, When I am able to, to say a word on behalf of you, to people as I represent you from time to time in different places. And Friday morning, there was an opportunity. Friday morning, I woke up to the same news that awakened you, the news of this horrific mass shooting in New Zealand. The first phone call I made was to a friend of mine named Tarif Saib. Tarif Saib is a leader of the Congregation of Muslim Community here uh, known as the Masjid Jafar, they gather at the um, Islamic Community Center in Alpharetta, and I called him to express to him that we are hurting with him. And he, he told me then, and he sent an email out uh, to a group of us later about a service that was happening later that day. But you may already know that, that we're part of a, an interfaith alliance in Johns Creek. It's just developing, and, and tragically, it began in November when... A friend of mine, Rabbi Jordan Ottenstein, um, welcomed the community to his synagogue in the wake of the, the synagogue shooting in Philadelphia. And there we gathered, and since then, every month we have continued to gather. Christian, Muslim, Jewish representation among the, the, the clergy, and we have coffee. That's one thing we absolutely all have in common is coffee. And we gather, though, and, and with each gathering, we learn that we have more in common than we could have possibly imagined. And we, we share burdens and hopes. We pray together, and we love each other. And that afternoon, uh, an email went out that that afternoon there would be a service 
with the Muslim community, and, and Tarif invited us to take part. And so we went. David White was uh, part of the staff as well who went here with me. And I have to tell you, this was the very first Muslim worship service I had attended. We walked in, uh, took my shoes off uh, as in respect to the space where we were. In fact, I kind of recommend that. It's kind of comfortable. I might start preaching barefoot. That, what would you think about that? The first few rows might not appreciate it. But, but we sat on the back and we watched everything unfold from the ancient call to prayer to the standing and the kneeling and the bowing. And I was moved by something. And I sat on the back row there with the other clergy. There were about seven of us maybe. And Tarif came and sat right before preaching time. He had a sermon to preach. And I was amazed at how similar many of the things were in that room. There were children crawling on the floor, bored for being there. Uh, there were people showing up late, which doesn't happen here, I know. There were people, there were clocks all over the, the room so that the sermon wouldn't go long. <laughs> Not a Baptist thing to do, right? But there were people looking at their watches to see how long this thing, and there were mothers handing candy to kids to keep them satisfied until it was over. It's curious how similar we are. Well, we're on the back row, Sharif comes up and we sit and he leans over to me and they meet regularly on Fridays at two o'clock and he already had a sermon planned and he leaned over and he said, Sean, this, I had another sermon planned and this wasn't it. He said, I'm going to have to wing it. And then from one preacher to another, I said, I know the feeling and I am praying for you. And then he stood up and gave one of the best sermons I have ever heard. He stood in front of a packed house. And, and his sermon was not eloquent. It was not flowery. It was not this kind of inspiring kind of high moment. You know what it was, though? It was real. It was, it was raw. It was a mixture of a little bit anguish and a little bit anger. It was a little bit hurt and a little bit hope. And you know what I watched him do? I watched Tarif call his people to peace. I watched him call his people to nonviolence, to non retribution, because vengeance is not Muslim in the truest sense. And I watched him deliver this, this appeal to them to be neighbors to the community. And then he told a story. He said not long ago, well, a, a while back, he was asked to serve on a board somewhere in Forsyth County. And later, after he had served on the board for some time, a woman confessed to him, Tarif, when I first learned that there was going to be a Muslim on the board, it made me nervous. I don't know any Muslims, and all I really knew of Muslims was what I saw on the news. All I knew were robes and, and turbans, which really is not quite accurate anyway. But now that I know you, now that I know you, you're one of the nicest persons I've ever met, and I consider you my friend. 
Well, he told that story, and as he's telling that story, of course, keep in mind, in the back of the room, there are all these clergy. There's a Catholic priest. There are about three Baptist ministers. There's a Presbyterian. There's a Jewish rabbi. And he says, robes and hats. He said, I really don't know what's so strange about robes and hats. Doesn't the Pope wear a long robe? Doesn't the Pope have a big hat? And, and, and don't, don't Jews wear a head covering and grow beards? But he said, it took her knowing me to become a friend. And then he called them to be neighborly in this community. And then afterwards, he invited us to come up and, and be welcomed. And he had asked me to say a word. And so to this community of grievers and those who were struggling you know, that, that afternoon, I spoke on your behalf and said, on behalf of the Christian community, part of the Christian community in this area, I want you to know we are hurting with you. We grieve with you. Because what we believe at Johns Creek Baptist, yes, Baptist Church, is that when there is a threat to religious freedom anywhere, there is a threat to religious freedom everywhere. And we condemn this, and we grieve with you, and we want you to know we love you and are praying for you. And then I looked out, and there was something I saw that moved me more than anything else that afternoon. I saw you. I saw you, my beloved family of faith. Some of them had darker shades to their melatonin, melatonin, right? But I saw you. And in that packed room of grieving Muslims, I saw on their faces and read in their eyes the same thing that every week I stand in here and see on your faces and read in your eyes, and that is life is a little bit of a mix of beauty and brutality, and we come to spaces like this to lift it up before the God we know. And I want you to know that standing there in front of all of those extremely welcoming worshipers, it occurred to me that the boundaries that divide us are thinner than we think. The boundaries that divide us are thinner than we think. And I began to think on that Friday afternoon, my gosh, well, I have a sermon for Sunday too, and this wasn't it. And I began to ask the Lord, what would you have me say to our people in light of these events? Is there anything in what we are already talking about that has anything to do with this. And then it occurs to me, there it is. The boundaries that separate are thinner than we think. Now, if you can do something with me today, if we can kind of reach down and like unearth that statement, if we can take that idea, the boundary lines are thinner than we think, and just almost like we're repotting a plant, if you could kind of take it out of, out of that context, and let's just repot it here in the text in Leviticus. The boundary lines are thinner than we think. This is what Leviticus is all about. 
Leviticus is about preparing a whole people to learn something about navigating life in which there are always going to be lines that are so thin that if you're not careful, you can venture on one side or the other of them. There are lines to attend, boundaries to be aware of. In Leviticus, it's a group of ex-slaves who now have been made free But these are instructions that are meant to show them how to so order their lives that they stay free. How to navigate the lines because every decision that they will make will determine whether or not they fall off of one side or another of their freedom. Will they make choices that keep themselves free? Or will they make choices that return them to a state of enslavement? All of the lines that separate freedom and enslavement, uh, life and death, are thinner than we think. And this is what Leviticus is all about. Attempting to show us that every single decision we make from the rising of the sun to the very setting of the same is about learning to navigate the, the very thin line between life and death. And navigate it in a way that is faithful and keeps our identity unique in the world. And one of the examples it uses is childbirth. Because for the first 10 chapters of Leviticus, it's all about building a tabernacle and God will dwell with people and people will dwell with God. And here are some disciplines and practices that you can put in place that allow you to experience the presence of God and be transformed by it in the tabernacle, or we're just going to say in church. But chapters 1 through 10 are all about inside the church. Chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14, where we are today, is about taking that transformation that happens inside the church and stepping it out into the streets, into the normal rhythm of everyday life. So in these five chapters, there's real life spoken of. Uh, Food, what will we eat for dinner? Childbirth, skin diseases, household mold of all things, and bodily discharges. All of these very human, gritty, earthy experiences. Why? Because in every earthy, human, gritty experience, there will always be, always be a thin line for us to be aware of. And in every decision we make, every mundane, normal human decision, we can choose life or we can choose death. And to give an example of what the writer of Leviticus is talking about, he says, you know what? Think about childbirth. And beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, we hear these seemingly primitive words. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Oh, a woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. Then the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred or go into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. If she gives birth to a a daughter, for two weeks the woman will be unclean. Two weeks. Uh, During her period, as if during her period. She she then must wait 66 days to be purified from her bleeding. When the days of her purification for a son or a daughter are over... 
she is to bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a year-old lamb, a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. He shall offer them before the Lord to make atonement for her, and then she'll be ceremonially clean from the flow of her blood. And then it goes on to talk about if she can't afford a lamb, she can bring a pigeon, a dove. Incidentally, this is what the mother of Jesus did. In the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke, you'll read about Mary after having given birth and on the eighth day, bringing her son to the temple, she enters into a period of time where she obeys the law, the Bible of her day. But what's going on here in this seemingly odd, primitive, ancient, irrelevant text, right? Well, a lot is going on. On one level, there's a lot happening at like a 5,000-foot level. It's about medical care, really. I mean, it's about an ancient attempt to take a leap forward in taking care of women. In other words, after childbirth, which is one of the most divine experiences of life, husbands, give her some space. That's part of what this text is about. Give her some space. She's not to be touched. And we're going to put all kinds of religious language on why she shouldn't be touched. But you know why she shouldn't be touched. Husbands, because she needs a minute. Give her a hot minute to relax and recover from what one of my medical friends referred to this week to me as postpartum toxic shock. Right? True. So on one level, on the 5,000-foot level, there's this thing happening. It's about medical care. It's about being safe. On another level, maybe a 10,000, there's a theological thing going on. Why is it that she needs more time to recover after she's had a daughter than a man in a patriarchal society? Well, that's a whole other sermon series altogether. You know what I want to do? I want to elevate our altitude up to about 30,000 feet. Because if you back up the camera angle, widen it long enough, wide enough to see, then I want you to see that all of these examples are an attempt for the writer of Leviticus to demonstrate that in all of life, there is a thin line between life and death. And one of the most visible demonstrations is in that of childbirth. Because when you have a child, the event is a spectacular event of life-giving. And yet there is the loss of blood. And in the ancient mind, blood represents life, but the loss of blood represents death. That's not such an ancient thought after all. Incidentally, in chapter 15, which we won't get to, there is a male equivalent to this principle that in childbirth, the woman is giving life through blood, but is losing blood and is on the verge of a kind of death. Well, in chapter 15... The men contribute to this biology as well, and uh, there is that which the man produces, and it represents life, but the loss of his seed represents death. So Leviticus is attempting to say, pay attention that in you is surging the capacity to make life or take life. Can I tell you that there is a thin line between life and death, and you can see it. Do you know when I saw it? April the 13th, 2001. Laura wakes me up to say that her water has broken. These are days when I tell stories in which I am glad she's worshiping in the other room on this particular day, out of the distance of throwing a hymnal. 
She wakes me up and we head to the hospital. It's the day. It's come. Here we are. We get to the hospital. And there are 26 babies born on that uh, labor and delivery ward that day. It's crowded. And they don't have a room for us. I mean, I'm not trying to elevate this to like a messianic level. But there's literally no room. And they say, take a lap. So we go walking around the halls for four hours walking. And we'd come by the desk. Is there a room yet? Nope, take a lap. Okay, okay, just checking. And we'd walk around again and take a lap, hoping that gravity, you know, gravity. That's a John Mayer throwback. But that, that would take its effect and would, and would do its thing. Eventually we get a room and it's on. They come in, the anesthesiologist puts an epidural in her back. Ah, good, thankfully, this is going to be a little bit more of a relief. Well, several hours into, several hours into labor, the pain is getting worse and worse and worse and worse. I mean, it's getting so bad that she, she's like, am I supposed to be hurting like this? I mean, I've got this shot in my back. And we asked the nurse, is she supposed to be hurting like this? we got this shot in our back. I don't have any shot in my back, but she... So she said, well, let me check. She leans up. She leaned up. Let me check the back. And this is the direct quote. She goes, uh-oh. <laughs> All right, so rule of thumb. When your medical professional can find no better words than, uh-oh, you're in trouble. She said, it fell out. So I said, put it back in. She said, it's too late. You're at nine centimeters. I said, I'm not at nine centimeters. She said, she's at nine centimeters. It's go time. And then it revs into high gear. And then we enter into the birth of our firstborn son. And, and I'm not exaggerating to tell you, it was a very, very, very difficult birth. There were moments when the loss of blood, the drop of blood pressure, and a number of other uh, factors truly made us believe that Laura might not make it. I thought that my wife was not going to make it. At some point, I turned and I yelled at the doctor. I said, dude, get this kid. And he said, I'm trying, but he's stuck. And I said, well, unstick him. And at one point, I promise you, I think I, can't, I, I, think I might have said, um, you know what, just here, move. I got it, I got it. I got the two, try to help, you know. So eventually, at the apex of the trauma, at the apex, the height of fear and chaos, the, the baby comes. And the nurse, wise beyond her years, does something interesting. Immediately, she takes my son and places him on her chest. And the earth stood still. The universe tilted in. And we were closer to God than we had ever been before. Leviticus is saying, if you want to know how thin the line is between living and dying, between life 
and death. Think of a birth because nowhere are you closer to both at the same time. And I say, amen. And why do I say amen? Not simply because we're talking about childbirth because Leviticus isn't talking about childbirth. Don't forget what I've always said about Leviticus. It's not what the text says that we pay attention to as much as what the text is doing. It's not just what the text says. It's what does the text do in the lives of those who hear what it says. And remember what it's doing. It's attempting to demonstrate that every day of their lives, they will give birth to either life or death. And so will we. Every moment that you wake, every day you wake, and every moment of that day is filled with labor and delivery. Every conversation you have with people is filled with words that could bring life or words that can bring death. Every thought that you that you keep lodged in your mind as you go through your day, whether it's healthy or hurtful. Every thought is either a life-giving thought or a life-taking thought. Every emotion that you harbor in your heart from years ago when they said that thing and she did that thing, that harbored emotion can either bring life or take life. Every relationship that you nurture, how you spend your time and where you spend your money can be a choice between Life and death. What you post and tweet and like and share. And who you choose to let into your life and who you insist on keeping out of your life can be a choice between living and dying, life-giving and life-taking. And how you define the word Neighbor can be a choice between life and death. And that line between the two is so thin that you sometimes can poke a hole right through it. In Deuteronomy, we hear these words. I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses, Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. God is instructing the Israelites as God continues to instruct us that we constantly have a choice, not just daily, but every moment of each day. We have a choice. The things we think, the things we say, the actions we take, the mercy we give or withhold is a decision between life and death. Are most of your decisions life-giving or life-taking? Are your daily choices mostly choices that bring life, give birth to life, right? or give birth to death? Because our Lord said, and we hear about it in, John 10, 10, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly, a life filled with reconciled relationships and hope and beauty and grace and mercy and sharing and peace. I came that they might have life, 
Now, I memorized that when I was 10 years old, but it wasn't until this week that I saw one word in that passage pop off the page and grab me by my clerical and say, pay attention, and it's the word might. I came that they might have life. In other words, they might. And they might not. It depends on what they do with what I have given them. And you find yourself today asking, well, what, then what do I do? I mean, if so, you're talking, great, great, I want to choose life, but what do I do if I have only chosen a trajectory of death and death-making in my relationships and in my journey? What do I do? Here, here's what we consider. You know, when we come to faith, a lot of us come to faith, and we ask faith a question. We ask faith, is there life after death? But once we're in the faith, do you know what the faith is asking us? Faith asks us, is there life before death? Will you allow the life that is teeming in the risen one to rise up and team within you? Because it will then affect every word you speak, every relationship you keep. It will affect your, the way you do and view all of life. So, what do you do? You come to a place where you recognize in confession and in repentance, Christ, I, I admit something to you. Everything that you have done was so that we may live not only eternally, but right now truly live. And I admit to you that while I receive that, I have chosen a way of life that so very much doesn't look like your way I have chosen the way of death. I have toxic relationships. I speak ill of my neighbor. I haven't forgiven the person who harmed me. I, I keep instead of share. I recognize that all of the decisions I make from sun up to sun down have the capacity to bring life, but I confess to you that I am destroying my own life and God knows who else. And I am sorry. Forgive me and show me how to choose life today. So, when we do that, the one whose name is life will rise up in you like a mighty resurrection and give you life like you've never known it. But there's somebody here on campus, I know, here or in the FLC or online who you're saying, this sounds really good, but you don't know how much death I've experienced. I mean, I've experienced the death of, of a relationship. I have family members who have gone. I've lost my job. I attempted to do this thing right where I walked this thin line. But every time I try to do the right thing, I seem to fall off the side of death. And you're talking about life, and I have almost resigned to the belief that there is no more life left for me. I am alone and I am desperate. Well, if that's where you are this morning, I just want you to think about life in a new way. If you've ever been at a funeral that I have um, officiated here in our church, you know that there is a story that I like to tell from time to time because it says everything about life and death. 
John Claypool said, if you want to know something about life and death and the mystery of that fine line in between, then think about a baby being born. I mean, we're talking about the baby chapter, the, the, the birth chapter, so here's another birth story. He said, think about what happens when a baby is born. Usually, typically, if everything goes well, when a baby is born, everybody in the room is typically pretty happy. I mean, they know what's going on. Here's a brand new life come on to the scene. And there's celebration, there's laughter, there's smiling, everything's great, it's life. Everybody's celebrating in the room except the baby. From the perspective of the baby, something has gone terribly wrong. I mean, everything was just fine before. I mean, there, it was dark and warm and cozy. I had all the food I needed without even having to work for it. And there was this nice kind of rhythmic kind of lullaby to go to sleep by each night. And then all of a sudden, there's all this squeezing and then, and then this blinding light. And, and then this, this guy I've never met turns me around, smacks me on my backside. And everybody in the room knows what's going on. It's birth, it's life, it's hope. This thing's going to keep going, right? God's doing it again. But to the baby, from her perspective, it's death. It's, it's the death of life in the womb. It's the death of a former comfort. It's the death of everything familiar. But you and I know better. See, but sometimes that line between life and death is so thin, it sometimes blurs. Well, that baby's going to grow up, and let's say the baby grows up, and now she's applied to the university of her dreams, and she's accepted, and she's celebrating, and she's so excited because she's about to move into the dorm, and this means life. This means autonomy and freedom. She gets to adult, do some adulting, and it's going to be great. It's life. But in the perspective of the parents, it may be something different. It may be a death, because all they can feel is the loss of the way life used to be, the house is going to be quieter, the schedule, the one that we used to complain about being so busy is now going to be so empty there's nothing to do. And in many ways, it's the death of a thing that we once knew. And that same pattern, that thin line between life and death will repeat again and again and again through all the stages of our lives. And so I'm here to tell somebody that if you are worried about the final death, if you fear that there is no more life after what you have already known, why wouldn't it be the case that the death that we interpret as final is not final in the least, but it is only the beginning of a birth more mysterious and glorious and full of holy light that, than we have ever imagined before? You see, that line is thin between death and life, but in Jesus Christ it gets even more blurry than that because the line is between life, death, and life again. Yeah, let the church say amen. Let's pray. God, we stop here for a moment just to confess to you that we are children of the light, but we sometimes walk so far into the darkness that we forget where the line is. There are days, Lord, when we long to experience the fullness of life that allows us to, uh, to be free and to stay free and to be filled with joy and, and a sense of, of uh, 
contentment in this life, but we recognize that because that line is so thin, we will make choices that even against our own better judgment, even against our own health, will take us into the forest of darkness, into the places where we lose life. And then our lives become smaller and we reject rather than welcome and we, we, uh, we, we are ambivalent rather than caring and we, we, we keep to ourselves rather than give ourselves away. But we don't want that anymore. Forgive us. Lord, somebody here even uh, caught up in this prayer with us in this very moment is feeling something different Lord, somebody may be on the very brink of a yieldedness to you that changes everything for them and and, and they're lacking one more measure of courage. I pray that right now your Holy Spirit would so move in them that they would leap out of their seats and come forward to yield their lives to you even as we sing. Lord, you are the source of life the Lord over death and the King of life again. To you be all glory and power. Amen.